The way I look at cars, I tend to be attracted to the ones that have the biggest personalities. Not audacious now, I'm talking about a car that looks back at you almost. Those kind of things really last. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Three years ago, Ralph Gio was named Global Head of Design at Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, FCA. There, he is responsible for steering design across the company's entire brand portfolio. In practical terms, Ralph signs off on the look and feel of every new Dodge, Jeep, Ram, Chrysler, Fiat, Alfa Romeo, and Maserati produced. It's a formidable responsibility, but one that Ralph is uniquely equipped to pull off with his winning combination of talent, humility, and spot-on instincts for design that's both accessible and aspirational. During his tenure at FCA, Ralph has had a major hand in some of its most iconic and successful vehicles, including the Chrysler 300, the SRT Viper, and most recently the Dodge Ram. Ralph and I sat down in a funky old music studio in Detroit, not far from FCA's headquarters, to discuss the trajectory of his career at Chrysler, his passion for designing cars with human characteristics, his approach to bringing a design sensibility to his leadership role, and his vision for the automobile's future. Hint, it's sustainable, increasingly but not entirely automated, and designed with love and attention to every last detail. I tend to want to explore with the people I interview something about their creative life as children first. Mm -hmm. You have some great legendary stories that all culminate in this famous letter. And yeah. <laughs> I know you've talked about it a lot, but it's such a great yeah. story that I'd like to get to it. But I, before we do, it'd be interesting for me just to explore with you that kid, that kid who mm-hmm. drew cars all the time. And, and maybe if you could conjure for us a little bit about yeah. your own creative spirit and who well, you were as a well, kid. Well, it has to go back to the way I was raised. I mean, I was raised by uh, Caribbean parents who, you know, first generation and they, they wanted nothing but the best for us, but they believed, you know, staying in school and all that stuff was was a big deal, and, and of course it was. Uh, but the other thing was don't go out and play except for Fridays and Saturdays. You know, we couldn't really go, you know, people would knock on the door, hey, can Ralph come and play? And be like, no, sorry, he's studying. I'm like, well, I did my homework three hours ago, you know. Um, so then I started drawing. I mean, I really had a lot of time on my hands as a kid, and uh, my parents were, you know, relatively lower middle class. We didn't really buy toys that often. I didn't have any of the action figures my friends had. So I kind of had to make everything. I, I literally would take um, scotch tape and old cereal boxes and cut them up and make stuff. And then I would draw on the backside of that. Anything I could get my hands on, I would sketch on. I like to joke that I grew up in uh, in somewhat the ugly 70s. I mean, there were some pretty horrendous vehicles. And I remember walking, just observing them and going, wow, those are, why they look so strange? Why are they so not attractive? And then a I, discerning eye, even <laughs> at such a tender age. Well, you know, growing up in Montreal, it was it's an enthusiast community. Actually, a lot of um, because of Formula One, as you know, yeah. it's raced there, and there's a lot of the odd supercar will show up in Montreal. And every summer, the the circus called Formula One comes into town, 
and the audience so the people that enjoy that bring their great machine so there was that contrast with the everyday cars and that's what sparked my interest in it and then you get to your teens and you're spending yeah. um your summers in new york with your aunt yeah my parents would you know they both worked so they shipped me off uh to different aunts and stuff uh, and i went and spent- from montreal yes. yeah I, I guess we should establish too that you born yeah. in new york but you grew up in montreal. yeah so they yeah. drive me down and being in the summer and drop me off spend a weekend with them and leave me and pick me up at the end of summer so i, I stayed at my aunt's uh Literally in her basement, and I again went back to my old habit of sketching a lot. And then, uh, but my this aunt was different. She, uh, Giselle, I love her. Uh, she was noticing me drawing so much and going, "Why well, you're into that, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And and then she recommended uh, you should do that for a living. I'm like, "What? No, it's just a hobby. It's just something I enjoy doing. I never thought of it as a career at all." And uh, she's one of those people, a big dreamer. You know, really um, pushed me to to find out how to how to become a designer, how to to make cars. And of course, none of us in the family understood what industrial design was. We just thought somehow you become an engineer. That was always the default answer. My parents would tell me, well, go and become an engineer, you know. Um, Did your aunt understand that? Did she, she know she, what industrial design was? She knew enough to ask. You know, she uh, she actually somehow found out the address to, uh, at the time, it was Chrysler uh, because of the TV commercials. At the time, you know, Lee Cook was on TV saying, if you can find a better car, buy it. You right. know? So, and I remember those ads. Yeah, they, they were very powerful in the early 80s and mid 80s. And uh, she took note of that. And, uh, and I think it was around 20, uh, sorry, 1985, right around there, she wrote them and they wrote back uh, with addresses of different schools. And uh, we had sent them a small snippet of samples of what I did. And they said, well, he could go, you know, uh, learn how to be a designer professionally. And I'm like, whoa. And it was mind blowing at the time. Yeah. And recommended a few schools, yeah, one of which actually, was Art Center. Art Center actually, was there, right? and, yeah. and uh, yeah. CCS, and I think Cleveland Institute right. of Arts, Pratt right. was also there. Uh, and then geographically, I, I, I did actually get information about Art Center, but it was just at the time physically, it felt like the other side of the world to me as a kid in Montreal, you know, going to California. So I settled for Detroit, you know. <laughs> it's a great school, CCS. Yeah. 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 So I just want to give a little moment to this aunt of yours. Yeah. I mean, it's very unusual. I think she's a hero of the story that really needs to be celebrated, right? I yeah. Mean, I remind and every- she's got an enterprising spirit that maybe her nephew has uh, <laughs> has got the gene, too. I don't know. She, that's an amazing thing that she would do, that she would say, yeah. okay, here's your passion. Yeah. Here's your skill, clearly. And I'll send this to to Chrysler. She, yes, and she. I owe it. I owe my life to her. I really do. I really uh, respect the fact that she didn't look at is it just a diversion, me just passing time. She really thought exactly. more of it, and um, and it was the confidence I needed at the time. I didn't even even for a moment think that I could do that as for a living. And she just said, "No, yes, you can." And today she just. She makes fun of it all the time. She goes, ha, I told you so, kind of thing. <laughs> it's funny. Well, so she's something. And then another hero comes along, and that's your brother, right? Yes, exactly. So um, silly me. I got this wonderful letter back from Chrysler, and I sat on it. I literally did nothing with it um, for a while. And why is that? I don't know. I was just, uh, it was before the internet. Is it so too intimidating? It was that, yes. I was definitely intimidated. I was... Uh, afraid to kind of admit to my parents I wanted to do this instead of take down the go down the engineering path. And I actually went to college. I, I graduated in the 11th grade, as you do in, in Montreal. And I went to um, CGEPT, uh, Vanier College. Right. And I spent a, a few, not even a few months there. And I literally locked up. I just didn't like it at all. I, the calculus, I used to do great in high school cal- calculus. And I went to the college level and my brain just exploded. <laughs> and I, I basically quit. I dropped out and I told my parents, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to work at a hardware store. And I took a job at a local hardware store and 
was unloading semi trucks and I thought, hey, I could do this for a living. This is mm-hmm. pretty good. And I got mm-hmm. promoted and I was doing well. Mm-hmm. And my brother uh, came home for winter break and literally sat me down and, and scared me straight. He goes, what are you doing? <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. And he said, hey, Ralph, where's that letter? And we dug it up and um, and actually, sorry, this was spring break, not uh, winter break. It was right around uh, right around April, March time frame because he was already in school in Still the winter in Montreal at the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Easily confused. And, and uh, the problem was when he, uh, he cracked the letter open, he, we actually called the school and they said, well, admissions close in a week's time. And uh, all of a sudden- Everything got real. And he you, goes, you called CCS. Yeah, we did. My brother made me call CCS. I think my mother actually made the phone call, but we basically uh, tried to research. Again, no Google back then, right? You couldn't just jump online. Um, and we had about a week to create a portfolio. They said, well, we need 10 of his best pieces and uh, we'll see what happens. And and uh, basically, he brewed, first time I ever had coffee, actually. My brother literally made me pots of coffee and said, we're going to sketch for the next four days and make a portfolio. Good. And has the addiction lasted to this day? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I'm on three cups already. Uh, and it was amazing. It's the first time my big brother really gave me that kind of time. I mean, he was a typical big brother, you know, poke fun at you and beat you up and stuff. But he really, uh, again, he had already been in college about eight, two years, so he really understood the value of it. And said, you're not going to just unload semi-trucks, Ralph. You're going to do something with this talent. All right, so let's fast forward now mm-hmm. to you as a designer and by getting at some, some conceptual things that mm-hmm. you talk about. And I have this quote of something you said that is a good beginning to this. And you said, I always look for something that will pierce through the subconscious. Mm-hmm. We really strive to give our vehicles an iconic sense of feeling so that when you look at them, they almost feel alive. Yes. And I thought that was really a oh, thank you. provocative and compelling way to think about design. And I wonder if you could yeah, I reflect mean, I, on that a little more It's for in us. the way I look at cars, I tend to be attracted to cars, almost the ones that have the biggest personalities, not audacious now. I'm talking about a car that looks back at you almost, has a, a memorable face or a memorable character. It's either a playful character or aggressive character. Um, those kind of things really last. They kind of transcend time. And a bit, you know, the, the Wrangler has that effect on people where you know what it is, you know what it's about. It, it announces its its perkiness, so to speak, but also its sense of adventure. And of course, the 911. And then there's cars that, that punctuate our times that have this effect that are memorable forever. Um, so part of me wants to do that. I want to create these icons, not just another, you know, uh, portfolio filler. Uh, so we're very conscious of that, and we're very lucky. I mean, we we have brands that have these already embedded in them, and some of them we create as we go along, but most of them uh, is a nurturing process. You know, you don't want to mess it up as a designer. <laughs> At right. the same time, not be beholden to the current day. You have to right. always be pushing. Right. Yeah. From what I've read and from what I've heard you say, this whole idea of the of the grill of the of yeah. the front of the mm-hmm. car of the of the face almost I'm a theater guy so it, <laughs> it triggered a sort of sense of the mask and the power of the mask in performance and how we engage with yeah. the mask and how we give it dimension even if it doesn't have yeah. that it seems that that that's a perfect analogy it's it's a war mask it can be a war mask it can be a a, um, a Mardi Gras mask it can be you know exactly. one of those player masks you know, that you see in those wonderful exactly but what seems to interest here. you which I found so so compelling is mm-hmm. that's your connection into the design mm-hmm. or it feels like it that's what that's the life that you talk about that yeah 
yeah. it brings to us or and then we give to it in return. And it gets that emotion started. I mean, the yeah, consumer yeah. has to finish it, right? You just want, I just want to get the spark going. And then the rest is, is a consumer's choice. Because exactly. everyone- That's true in theater too. Three people can look at the same car and see three different personalities. Exactly. Uh, but I just want to engage conversation. <laughs> right. Seems another mm-hmm. pivotal point, and I might be wrong about this, but the other part of the car that seems to interest you a lot is the relationship of the wheel to the body. Yes. It's, What's it's, that about? It's that proportion. I mean, going back to, and I judge these car shows all over the country, but you look at white walls on, on 20s cars and 30s cars, they were chasing that same idea, that idea of, of you know these large cars, but they had big reading wheels. You know, the wheels, because of the white walls, read bigger than they really were. Um, and to this day, we're still trying to find that perfect balance because if the wheels are too small, the car looks heavy and clumsy. If they're they're too big, the car can look fragile and and you know delicate. Um, so it's that proportion, and and that is another part of design that I think a lot of of the difference between what we do a little bit than a fine artist, for example, is it's a negotiation from day one when you're designing a car. Um, you immediately have to either befriend the engineers or bang them over the head one or the other. I, right. I choose to befriend them. <laughs> right, right, right. And you're negotiating about this this magical ratio of of the wheel sizes, the location of the wheels, the overhangs. We talk a lot about in design uh, because that's something the average observer can't articulate, but they feel it. They know that car. Why does that car look good? Because it's just sitting on its wheels so perfectly, and it looks agile. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I want to maybe go back and explore your process mm. as a designer. And I know with automobile design, there's a whole team of people, of but and, and we need to get there. But just for the moment, just talk about Ralph and what he does. And when you sit down to begin that sketch. Well, Ralph has changed, to be very honest with you, um, to look at what's happened to me in the last 26 years now. Wow. <laughs> um, started the old days when I was you know, on the board um, sketching. The beginning of the sketch was emotional. Just I wanted to just draw. Just as, It was almost like a release, just sketching. And I had already kind of contemplated design as I walked around, as I enjoyed life, as I read magazines. And so you're, you're kind of by your surroundings, you know, you create things in a way. And that's a bit of a trap too. You, know, you can be stuck in your time in a way. Um, so as, as you get older and as you kind of see the world, I travel a bunch. Uh, my influences have broadened tremendously. So when we start projects, um, I want to fully understand who the customer is. Where is that car going to do? Where, where is it going to have purpose? You know, in what market? What, you know, so you have to become part anthropologist. So I guess I don't draw right away anymore. You know, matter of fact, I don't draw right now. I'm, I'm a, I direct, I manage, I, I find teams, I put people together, I negotiate. That's what I do. I, I, I draw once in a while privately just to get idea on paper. But but the big thing is understanding the product holistically and who who is that customer? Who is trying to make that? Sometimes you can create a customer out of thin air. You can you can find something that people are emotional about and deliver it. And all of a sudden they go, wow, where's that the product? I've been waiting for that product my whole life. Here it is. So let's mm-hmm. compare those two moments of Ralph who sketched from emotion, you said, yeah. and mm-hmm. Ralph who's now taking in a different input yeah. before you begin. And when you mm-hmm. talk about emotion, what do you mean by that? Well, what got you into it? Was it an idea? idea, question, and how would the sketching actually help you discover that? Well, part of, I think, the beginning of any young designer's journey is is a selfish one a bit. And I, and I hire designers from all over, and I go to schools, and I see the year-end shows, and I watch. A lot of time, they even... They even uh, We've got pre- some good ones for you in Pasadena. Yeah, they present <laughs> with the word I a lot. It says, I this, I this. Right. I, I imagine this. So they want to configure the world as they wish it would be, you know? So there's a bit of that going on. Some of it is just an idea they've always had. Now they have the ability to to transpose it on, onto either 2D or 3D nowadays, right? Um, 
so I think it's a selfish thing in the beginning. It's really an ex- like a fine artist. You're expressing yourself. You're you're dreaming out loud because you can. You've got these incredible tools. You've got an audience now. <laughs> so all these things that have been harbored inside you, your whole youth is now on display. You know, and over time that changes naturally. And you and I really um, admire the designers we hire. I call them the green ones. You know, straight out of school, right. uh, so much innocence in their work. They don't know what they don't know, and that's that's. I leave them alone. I don't try to pollute their minds at all. I want them to ha- enjoy that. And some of the greatest ideas come from there. Some of our interns that we have uh, generate the most amazing, innocent ideas. I almost don't want them to feast it out yet. Just enjoy it. Just almost like a sci-fi movie. Let's go play a little bit. Mm. Because you can extract even a 5% out of that idea could become something. So I just never, you know, number one is create fertile ground. So these these um, designers, and you'll see seasoned designers be able to do that. Some of the best designers are able to reach that innocent place again at will almost and say, you know, you know, Daniel Simons is one of those people. Every day he does it for a living. You know? <laughs> the childlike mind is unbelievable. Call it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I try you know, one part of your brain as a designer have to has to remain innocent and yeah. and and do you remember when you were doing those drawings mm-hmm. um, and you were, again, working on this sense of expression? Mm-hmm. Do you remember that feeling oh, of the pencil amazing. on the paper or the charcoal on the paper? It's, it's the- almost like it's a totally different analogy. When I race a car and I'm in a good place, it just happens by itself. It's like any athlete who's in the zone. And I remember when you sketch, you already know what it's going to be like. Before. Sometimes you, you know what the, the thing is in your head and you want it to go on paper and it just happens. It just magically comes out of your hands and... And other times you just want to break the pencil in half. You know, it's not right. always predictable. Right. Uh, but the ones that put your smile on your face is when it just your body, the paper, your mind, everything is is one, and it just comes out. It just and it looks great on paper, and you're happy with it. And for me, it's it's fleeting sometimes. I mean, I have to be everything has to be kind of perfect in my brain before I can do it. Uh, but I often sketch in my mind before I touch a paper. I'm I'm imagining what I want to do. It could be two days before or even uh, during the day when I'm walking around with my dog, you know? And then when I finally get to papers, when it just, it's just, all it is is converting it to 2D so other people can see is it. Is that right? So oh, yeah. there's no, it doesn't change as your as the drawing sometimes, happens? It doesn't evolve? Sometimes, of course, of course it does. Because sometimes there's something about it in your mind and paper, you kind of edit it. Right, right. And then when you stand back and look at that same sketch two days later, you're like, ooh, wow, I did that. You know, and you criticize yourself or other people uh, as inputs start to to rain in on you. And that's good. Uh, we, we have an incredible dynamic at work where we put the work up right away and we leave it up. Almost like a museum showing. We want people to... We don't want to, to, you know, to kill the idea at all. We want to actually just to see how people react to it. And that has a huge effect on a designer. He may redo that sketch now with all those inputs, make it better, typically. Okay, so let's fast forward to now. And you yep. were saying the input is different. It's it's yeah. a it's a different kind of brief. It's about a certain customer. It's about a certain geographic location. Yep. I imagine. Um, where do you find the the equivalent kind of inspiration? Uh, reading, observing, traveling, um, engaging other parts of the company. We have an incredible product planning team. Um, people from all over the world. Where we have we have satellite offices. I want their inputs. But at the same time, I always keep a, a little bit of innocence. You know, I want to not know too much because I believe you can twist and turn and, and adjust culture through product. You can actually uh, punctuate again time willingly. You can say, I want to move a, a whole generation of buyers this direction. You don't always have to evolve or, or do whatever they're comfortable with. So you have to know enough about the culture to know what you can get away with. 
and I think that's something that's important. Uh, but again, I try to insulate my people from some of that work and, and take it on myself so that they're not overly um, bound by it. I really want that freedom in the beginning. So it's a balancing act. You know, I guess I know too much now in a way. It's impossible to know too much, but I feel uh, so many inputs. I, I sit through so many business meetings and board meetings, and I know the financials. I'm like, ugh, I wish I didn't know some of that stuff. <laughs> well, it's so interesting. I, and I have, a, I have a bit of a burning question for you yeah. that I was going to ask later, but this is the perfect juncture to ask it, is mm -hmm. that is your work now as a leader mm -hmm. informed by the creative spirit of who you are as a designer and what you learn from those sketches? Always, always. Every decision I make. Can you talk about how that works for you? It has to work that way because I couldn't. I cannot just become a... a um, financial-based leader or somebody who's, who's worried about the bottom line because that would uh, there's plenty of those guys you know I, my job is to is to challenge a little bit and you know because we could technically make one car and sell it for 20 years if we wanted to and just yeah but sometimes you have it's time to to go a different direction or to uh, underscore what a brand's about with product you know to really to to I call it fertilize the soil you know you keep paying into the brand's equity with new products and, and relevant products so always thinking about that it's it's the balancing act I, I i thrusted myself into business school back in 2000 and 2001 i went back to school just so i could understand i can decode a little bit of the business language i was hearing a lot and a lot of my designers have done that and tom gale one of the people i've, I've really looked up to did that back in mm. in the 90s and 80s uh, and i always thought to myself and a little bit for my dad i want my dad to be proud of me you <laughs> know went back to school mm. and got my business degree uh, but it's always trying to keep it in check so it doesn't i guess contaminate my creative side of my brain, I guess. Right. I mean, the parallel in my life is that part of my training is as a theater director. And mm -hmm. I actually think that's an amazing preparation mm -hmm. for being a college president. It actually informs how I work. And I'm, mm -hmm. I was curious to know whether or not there was a kind of parallel for you that way as well. Totally. And yeah. I, I actually describe to people outside of our world, um, I actually liken myself to a movie director. I try to explain what do I do for a living now. And I say, sometimes I feel more like a movie director. I'm, I'm, assembling casts, I'm looking at the story, I'm trying to, to anticipate the outcomes and, and, and fund it, you know, <laughs> and all those things. And as you were saying earlier, you know, tap the brilliance of the people you work with. Precisely. Yeah. And yeah. give them the opportunity to thrive. The one thing we try not to do though, is have the superstar, you know, every, you know, movies tend to have the headliner in the movie. And that's one thing. And I've, I felt that in my personal career where I got thrusted into situations where People would call me that, and that's one word I don't like, the superstar thing. It's like, are you kidding me? No way. I'm, I'm part yeah, of I'm a, a kid from Montreal. Right? Yeah, 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 plus I'm part of an army of designers it takes to make a vehicle. So it's it's tough to, you know, we all want to glorify people, and it's just in human nature to want to find heroes, but I'm the farthest from that. You know, I'm really, a, a truly enjoy working in teams and with brilliant people, you know. So let's circle back to the process itself. And we started with the sketch. And yeah. I'm just interested in, I think the listeners of the podcast would be really interested if you could kind of carry us through to then what happens from mm -hmm. that sketch to prototyping and wow. modeling. How much and, time do we have? <laughs> yeah. But just Let's to kind of sense of the, the, the contour of that it's, amazing process to design an automobile. Oh, it's a, it's a complex journey that the automobile goes through. So we start with the sketch um, and then uh, we usually have a competition. It's not just one, usually about six, seven, eight designers are competing. Uh, we go to scales um, because they're efficient to do. We team up, uh, we pick, let's say out of a wall of 200 sketches will pick five or six designers to go ahead and, and turn their sketch into a scale model, uh, typically fifth scale models. We'll team them up with one uh, clay modeler per designer, which to me is such an important process. They're the unsung heroes, the clay modelers, one of the Absolutely. unsung heroes yeah. of our industry. Yeah. 
And those two will work together as little as two and a half weeks, so as long as three months, depending on the project. And then we'll uh, narrow those down to maybe four. And oftentimes we'll split the sides of a full size. So we'll have two full size models with different designs on each side. And so just to interrupt yep. for a second, when you look at those scale models, mm -hmm. what do you, what, what's happening with you? It goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. It's the character thing. You know, do I see, imagine, I could imagine the car in the metal, I can imagine on the road just from that scale or even from the drawing. And I could say, will that car's or that design's personality push through all of the requirements that are going to rain on that design? Because the design will be reined in by crash requirements and feasibility and cost and all that. Right. So you have to kind of calculate all that when you look at a design and say, okay, after all that's happened to it, will it survive? So it has to have a personality that is so strong that it can push through. And you and you could see it in a, in a beautiful 90-year-old woman's face. When you look at their eyes, you say, oh, you could see the character of that person, even though they've aged, they're the same person, right? You see in their eyes. And that's, I'm being a little dramatic there, but that's kind of what a design that's has to great. do. It has to survive that process. And that's what carries it through. So yes. you're, you're, you're the guardian of that spirit. Yeah. And sometimes my, my team doesn't get, I'll kill a design in three seconds sometime. They're like, well, how, well that one's good. And this one just died. It's, well, it didn't have any Because character. the soul's gone? The soul's gone. Uh. Or the soul won't make it through, uh. you know, won't make it through the, the other process that we don't talk about, but the unglamorous part where the, as soon as we go to full size, that data also gets shipped over to engineering and they do the feasibility work and they cut sections and, and that process can be lengthy, you know, two, three months. And then finally we get down to one model and, and then it gets interesting. Is it possible for you to choose one of your cars? I mean, you, you can choose any one as long as it's the Chrysler mm -hmm. 300. Um, <laughs> no, you don't have to. Though. That, that, that's, a, that's such a fascinating story, though, really. Yeah. And a lot of people misunderstand. Like, I get so much credit for that car. And then, yeah, I did execute it. But the original idea came from Bob Hubbock and Freeman Thomas. I mean, they, you know, even Bob Boniface was involved in that. Um, but for some reason, no one inside the company got it, except I was one of the people that says, oh, my God, do you, do you see the character of this car? So right, right. I kind of uh, mother-handed, I guess. I kind of protected it because it was getting killed left and right. So I took it on. And, long and after, again, is that protection you kept it still alive? I mean, you, I guess you made so. sure I, that that's In retrospect, was... I, I was too young to understand it. You know, I was only mm -hmm. barely 29, 30 years old at the time. Um, but I knew I saw something in the car. And I remember we took it to the clinic. And it rocked people's worlds. And I'll never, I was in the clinic blending in. No one knew who I was at the time. And I just kind of sat there with all the respondents. And I could see the emotion in their eyes when they looked at the car. They, they just, all these great memories came back. They remembered being taken to drive in from their grandfather. And I'm like, we're on to something here. We're on to something here. Is there then another model that you uh, guided through to production that you Many, might, oof, that you would use an example to... I think the I RAM can illustrate the process yeah, like, that we talked we just talked yeah, about. Yeah, the RAM is a bit that way. The the current RAM and the RAM before it, we you know, we had a chance to to play with this big rig styling, you know, and we actually the one I was responsible for, the last generation one, uh, directly because I was head of the, the truck studio, is we we actually leaned the grill forward again. We actually cantilevered the grill so it would lean into the wind. And a lot of times it was counterintuitive. Everyone was doing aerodynamic trucks and at the time I was like, No, I want I want the, it's like a superhero puffing his chest out, you know. <laughs> so we had a little fun with that. And something is in the Pacific. I'm so, it's a vehicle that minivan, you know, a car guy, you're a racer. Why do you like minivans? Well, that that's a vehicle we could architect because you know, the last generation minivans, we always were inherited a platform. And this time we started from scratch so we could put the wheels where we wanted to and give it. And this. do you remember those initial sketches of the Pacific? Oh yeah. And it, arena sketch was literally six lines. I mean, just this beautiful empathic sketch wow. he did. And, and I showed in presentations that all the time the students said, that's it. That it was a innocent little sketch and she nailed it, you know. And when you look at it compared to the car on the road, you go, oh my gosh, yeah, the lines are there. You know, They're a little different, but they're, the spirit's the same.
Just to, again, to get at the evolution, did things change radically as you oh, yeah. <laughs> modeled it and prototyped it? Always, and, yeah, always. Yeah. There's this thing called aerodynamics and this thing called crash regulation. Right, so, of course, right. Yeah. Th- th- those constraints that then open yep. possibilities and as, even, you, as you fought for solutions. Yeah, right? but they're fun. I look at all of those as part of the process. We're used to it at this point. And, uh, and we try to coach some of the younger designers that are dealing with now all these limitations and don't see them as limitations, as you were saying. We actually see them as opportunities to learn. to talk a little bit about your role at FCA as head of design and your place among the leadership. You have a place at the boardroom table, I, I imagine. Yeah, at our, yeah, it's called Global Executive Council. We have a normal 12-person board, but this is the, the operational board, the governance board. And the conversation still happens at Art Center um, mm-hmm. that you know designers are still fighting for a place at the table, mm-hmm. still fighting to be involved from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Has the automobile industry um, finally uh, changed to I would say accept yes. that, and are are they are they now leaders in industry in a certain kind of way? I, I based on, I can I can't speak for the other competitors except maybe some of my friends that work uh, at GM and Ford, and I would say yes, they absolutely get it. And I've seen now over the years, uh, the Koreans get it, the Germans get it. I mean, there's some beautiful work being done all yeah, over. I mean, Peter Schreier's right? yeah, both a yeah. designer and a CEO, right? I yes, mean, he's an Hyundai, extremely yeah. talented gentleman who's who's been given some some wonderful carte blanche to to redesign brands. And I think everyone sees the value of that because the product is getting pretty good. Most most cars today are, are pretty stout, so it's a matter of 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 the brand and. Because you know, Ralph, it's an old argument, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, that you know, bring the design. Don't bring the designer in at the end to make it look pretty. You got to bring the designer <laughs> yeah. in to to really begin the whole process and yeah. solve the problems as they come and. But find I think possibility and constraint and all the other things we were talking. I about. I think right? as a design community, though, we have to. You have to be a rounded designer, though, because you can't just, you know, I always joke about the scarf-wearing designer who comes in and, and tries to razzle-dazzle the the engineering or the business planners. You have to really know your stuff. And I think uh, the modern designer is is exactly that. You know, and, and I look at Tom Gale, and I'm sure there's many other examples, but he was an engineer. He was a, you know, product planner. He was a designer. Uh, he was a businessman in a way as well. So I always looked at that, you know, and what you don't know, go find out, <laughs> you know, don't assume kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if you listen, uh, they love it, right? If you, if you really understand the business problem that you're trying to solve for, um, and you keep educating your customer and by, by the same time, educate yourself, then the product becomes better for it. And over the years, we, like I said, the moat went away. We brought in planners so early in the process to the point where they were like, well, I'm really welcome here. I can see these sketches at this, at this stage. And that, um, beholds them to you. They 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 love the fact that you're they're involved, and and then before you know it, the lines are blurred, and and some great product happens. It's a good point. It's a good yeah. point. Where it's not just waiting for an invitation to the table. It's also yeah. earning your way there because yeah, exactly you've you've educated yourself. I think the instinct it. is to want to protect it, create a bubble around it, and say when I'm ready, I'll show you. But that unfortunately creates a little bit of an antagonistic kind of relationship. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. significant for how we think about educating designers for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and the kinds of things that we need to consider as we, oh. you know, build the this multifaceted education that yeah. we're always struggling with, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about the future. Okay. And I'm interested in what you're thinking about right now <laughs> with respect to Ooh. electric cars, autonomous like, cars. And I have to have an out-of-body experience because I'm an enthusiast. It's no, no, no secret. I love cars. I always have. I love everything about them. Um, the good, bad, and the ugly. I love driving them, love every, the engineering of it. So for me, I, I look at the future uh, with optimism. Uh, I think we can solve for everything. 
but I also believe a future is surrounding us. When I travel the world, I haven't been to Singapore yet, but they're doing some fascinating things in Singapore with city planning. So I don't think that spells the end of the automobile at all. Matter of fact, it just takes away a clumsy part of it. And and on the other hand, there's parts of the vehicle is still amazing. I mean, we've never had more beautiful cars on the road than we have today in terms of exciting choices, more supercars than you've ever seen, more retro-inspired cars, more luxury cars. I mean, the choices are infinite. And watching uh, China evolve and making some of the most futuristic uh, cars over there with new energy, they're really embracing electric vehicles. So uh, the future is kind of spread all over the world, if you think about it. And if you kind of, I can cherry pick those realities and, and stitch together a potential future in the US and even in Europe and it's not so scary. In every every turn I see some kind of solution has to be engineered designed. <laughs> and right. and we're seeing partnerships now with other tech companies and, and other, you know, collaborations which I think are exciting. I mean now uh, they are looking at our industry and have a lot of respect for it. Some of them have tried to make automobiles and go, whoa, it's harder than we thought. Let's go team up with Detroit. And vice versa. Uh, I find that if you had told me that ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I would have looked at you sideways. But today, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of cool, <laughs> you know. And I, I see we're starting to attract designers because they're fascinated by how these two realities are are colliding in a way, you know. And I think the average uh, uh, modern human is not going to give up mobility anytime soon. I think in cities it makes sense. I think uh, young uh, professionals that are living in, in these confines don't need a car. And that's okay, but they might buy a, a robo taxi, which someone has to design, someone has to make. So, so it's interesting, interesting yeah. times indeed. Yeah. Let's focus on the autonomous car. Mm -hmm. And what are, what are you thinking about that? If you look at American sci-fi, <laughs> we should have flying cars twenty years ago, right? We should have robots that that hang out with us uh, thirty years ago. Remember Robbie Robot? I mean, there's a lot of of easily said things, but much more difficult to do. The good news is is wonderful agencies like DARPA and some of the stuff going on in Palo Alto is creating incredible technology. Um, but at the end of the day, if you think about a, a real autonomous car, you're basically trying to simulate the human being. You know, So uh, the entire human being. I mean, driving a car is one of the most difficult things people do. You don't realize how many calculations you're making as you're, as you're just driving down the street, but you're negotiating with people with eye contact. You're calculating, you're feeling, you're doing a lot of things that take literally the processing power that would cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So it will come, but it's going to be a much more gradual process than what, what you hear. Um, the good news, though, I think it's engaging a lot of industries into the auto industry, sensing sensor industries, processors. You're seeing video game companies that used to only do video games are now doing processors for automobiles, um, which is increasing computing speed, which is going to make cars safer, which is going to you know, give vehicles more dimensions. You know, we're talking about level two autonomy being pretty much now and level two and a half. These are increasing grades of autonomy. And that's what you're hearing more now. Well, you certainly see the elements of it today. Yeah, in the right? meantime, every time I buy yeah. a new car, it has more. more and I use the analogy of my mom. I mean, she still drives. She's in her, in her mid 70s and she gets less enamored by driving. But as the vehicle becomes smarter, I just got her new Pacifica last year. She loves all the safety stuff that her PT Cruiser didn't have. You know? So a little bit of that is right. starting to feed itself in. I mean, I actually yeah. love that you said it's mm -hmm. you, you have to duplicate a human being, which is yeah. you would have said that about a car, you know, 30 years ago, too. But yeah. in a, you, you meant it in a different way exactly. in terms of the right. So now the, the driver is less and less involved to it, a point where maybe not involved at all. Yeah. And that extension of that driver and the connection with the vehicle and yeah. all that. I wonder about that. So rich about that. I wonder what happens. Yeah. Will they care about car. what it looks like if it's just a box that takes them somewhere? I think so. I really do. And I think, uh, 
the interior, if you're going to be in a car for a few hours and the experience, someone has to design that experience, you know, the interface with the vehicle. And I always think people care what they appear in, what, no matter what it looks like. You look, you look at some wonderful uh, public transportation. You know, I grew up in, in Montreal, which has a phenomenal metro system, beautiful Beautifully designed subway stations, all that stuff. So I think the industrial jobs may change. The industrial design careers may move around a little bit, but all that stuff has to be designed. <laughs> are, you, are you are you wrestling with that now as you're thinking about the future of the autonomous car? A little bit. Um, there's going to be a disruptor, of course, that shows up and shakes us all up a little bit. But for the most part, I know I know firsthand what the challenges look like, and and they're not insignificant, you know. But hey, that's what I love about our times. I think. Uh, I think I think uh, Steve Jobs said it. You know, we always overestimate the future and underestimate the present. So, so another question about the future too has to do, of course, with sustainability and mm-hmm. with figuring out this global warming issue. And yeah, uh, maybe the future of the electric car, if that's a part solution to that. Yeah, there, it's all. I, I also wonder about that because there's a you know there's a well to wheel calculation you have to think about as you as you produce um, electric cars. There's, it's not so simple. It's not such a clear answer. But also look at what we've done as the auto industry compared to what other industries could do as well. If every industry in the world was as aggressive about emissions controls as we've been, you'd see some real progress. I mean, uh, our piece of it is has, has been managed very well, especially in the last 15 years. I mean, the, the modern car is so clean. I mean, compared to a car from the 70s, it's a you know, hundred times cleaner. Um, and in some cities, it cleans the air. If you drive a car through Mexico City, <laughs> the theory is that it yeah. it actually cleans the air. It's so clean. Um, so, but but it goes back to the question of personal mobility. You know, that's really at the end of the day. Is does that make sense? You know, for our, you know, the freedom we get from a car is something special. I mean, it's like putting a super suit on when you. And that's how I look at it. You know, I look, I get into a car. It's like borrowing Superman's cape for a day, you know? <laughs> right? And it's it's an right. addictive thing. I mean, we've we've made ourselves addicted to this way of getting around and that, that freedom that only a car can give you in a way. Can you reflect at all on how? I mean, when you look at electric cars, they have a an aura to them. They have a yeah. feeling to them, a quality yeah. to them. That's yeah different lot. from it's a car important. with an internal combustion of course. engine. You know? Yeah, and and I think a lot of we're in a transition period where some of the cars that are electric are adaptations of of gas cars. And as you get to more bespoke platforms that are really born as electric cars in the beginning, uh, you'll really see some some proportional shifts because the batteries are typically between the wheels or underneath the platform. Uh, there's no engine to cool that way, so the grill obviously is is a choice. You know, you can see watching Tesla what they've done with the grill. It used to be a graphic, now it's pretty much gone. So it's interesting to see these these details. Um, and I'm a big fan of the iPace and some of these great new cars you're seeing on the road today. So. I think the the future is bright. I think we're going to see it's going to be like a um, a bit of buffet for a while. You're going to see a lot of choices overlapping mm-hmm. the old and the new and the mm-hmm. different. And and what I like, what I'm seeing actually, is a fusion of both. One of one of the sports I love is Formula One, where they've combined hybrid technology and gas technology. So the best of both worlds. Gas is extremely efficient when you're cruising on a freeway. It's it's actually cleaner than you'd think. And then uh, the electric is excellent for the cities, right? So it's a perfect combo. And we're doing that with our our plug-in hybrid minivan. We're starting to see that. That is very viable and very available today. You know, one of the great joys of being president of Art Center is you get to witness from the sidelines, to be sure, the car culture. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's hard and, to escape in California. Yeah. And right. The love affair with cars oh, yeah. in Southern California, for sure. Yeah. But the, the, the passion and the energy and the focus and the love of the automobile for all the magical things and the yeah. superpower things that you were talking about before yeah. as well 
is it, it, do you anticipate that's going to change radically with the change of the automobiles? The future of car culture going to be I've different. I wondered that very question because California, y'all, y'all are very lucky there because you can enjoy your your perversion three hundred sixty five days a year. <laughs> where, where we're entering winter here in Detroit, where you know our stuff goes to sleep for about four and a half months. Um, I used to think millennials didn't like cars. You've heard that, right? There was a lot yeah. of discussion about that. But if anything, I'm seeing them getting into it even more so than I was into it at their age. Because again, the choices, there's more choices. They can Google history on a vehicle that they saw at a, at a Cars and Coffee and all of a sudden be educated on it. Um, so I'm actually, if, if anything, I'm seeing a, a chunk of them are, are as into the hobby as we ever were. Uh, so it's alive and well in a way. It's taking on different uh, forms. I think self-expression is, is a lot easier now. There's a lot of these young kids that go off and create their own uh, tuning companies. Uh, some of it because they can buy 3D printing machines. They can model the stuff quicker. So the the hurdle, the cost of entry is so much lower for someone to go create their own business. Um, and again, the retro thing. I mean, you've seen these old cars be, some people are putting electric batteries in these old 240, 240Zs, right? They're converting them to electric. There's a company that does that to Corvettes. Uh, so interesting how uh, these worlds are, are colliding. You know, that comment actually reminds me of a question mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you. And um, I'm interested in other f- art forms and writing and film, et cetera, the concept of adaptation yeah. and how you take a first text and you adapt it for a film, say, or mm-hmm. from a novel to a film or whatever. And it has its own very deliberate creative process that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm curious to know if you think that's true as one develops various different editions of an automobile, a Challenger or a Charger are great examples, right? Mm-hmm. Are they going through a process of adaptation? I mean, is the original a kind of first text that then becomes shifted and adapted in a certain kind of way, like one would adapt a, a mm-hmm. novel to a film script? Is that a is that a, a parallel Absolute. that interests you? Absolutely. And I think if you look at how the movie world works, is like every five years or even 10 years, a story will, retold, a story will be retold again. An old concept is told again and again and again, sometimes five, six times reinterpreted or, or, you know, the Wonder Woman story, one of the best movies I've seen in recent times, completely retold in a modern way. And and what we do in design is exactly that. Uh, we, we pull on those heartstrings, on, on those emotional things that connect you back to the original product, distill them down so that the, the essence is there, but then surround them in a modern way so that there's no penalty, right? So, uh, you know, we wondered when the new Challenger came out, would it hurt sales of the old one, of the of, of restoration? And some of it did because people say, well, I can drive the new one and have none of those problems, you know, yeah, yeah. and have most of the emotional benefit, if not more so, and know that I could drive cost country and not have it break down. So, we do harvest that. Absolutely. I'm not going to lie. I do it on purpose. I, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. On the contrary, I think it's yeah. I think it's amazing. And I mm-hmm. think it calls upon a certain level of creativity that we probably don't think about yeah. enough, the, right? The, it's not just true. creating new lines or a new grill. The, or, or The danger in it, though, is like in the movie world, most people know the story already. So if you mistell it or screw it up, so to speak, then they they hold you accountable. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, I like when we I did, like the book better than the film. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so we just did the new Wrangler. We were, you know we're all nervous. We're looking at this thing it's like, oh man, there's such a following for this car. If we if we uh, hit a base hit with this thing, we'll know about it. You um, alluded to yourself earlier as, as someone who loves racing, mm-hmm. and I know you do that, and mm-hmm. just less and less, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, we have kids now too. Yeah, yeah. What is that experience of racing a car, which which would give you a very different kind of connection yeah. with the automobile? Then it started off being a selfish thing, really, just just go out there and, and enjoy it, you know, because I would get in trouble on the road, so I'd do it somewhere safer. 
<laughs> uh, but then it became about the community. It really became about the racing community as a whole different world of people. Um, I bump into some great, great people in that world, and we've become friends over the years as we meet up at tracks. And there's always a personal um, battle with your own lap times and things like that. But probably the fundamental reason I do it is the zone. I just love being in that dimension when I'm when I'm at that limit in the car. I'm all by myself, and my life's in my hands. And You've been through it. I mean, you've seen the highs and lows of the uh, the oh, industry, yeah. <laughs> especially at Chrysler, right? Big time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what's, um, what, what, what are the lessons that you... Uh, internal intestinal fortitude for one. <laughs> I think uh, nothing phases me anymore, to be honest with you. And even the lowest point at, at FCA wasn't so scary because uh, we really had this incredible, in 09, 08, um, we had that v- voluntary termination thing where people just you know took a check and walked away. And the company shrank a significant amount. The building here was, I think, down to 4,500 people. What year was this? Is 2009, oh, uh, early 09, late yeah. 08, um, right around Thanksgiving time is when they had that. And for me as a leader, I said, whoa, well, I have two options. I could <laughs> lead my way out of this or, or I knew we weren't giving up. The company was still going to kind of rebirth itself. And as a designer, that's an intoxicating time because, you know, everything you, you do now matters. It always mattered, but it really matters now, right? So... Uh, at the time, we were finishing up the Grand Cherokee, the Durango. We had uh, the Challenger refresh coming out, uh, the 300 and Charger refreshes, and, and a bunch of product that was still on the drawing boards. And I, I was looking on the board. I'm proud of that. I know if we can just get that done. And you always believe that as a designer. If I could just show the world this thing, everything will be great, right? So it was a bit of that that keeps you going because you're always working three to four or five years ahead. So unlike the poor engineer who's sitting in his room, maybe executing something, we were able to dream a lot. So we're kind of perpetual dreamers in a way. And was that downturn time, a time of dreaming? Yes, big time. Because well, it was- That's interesting right there, right? Yeah. In a, in a weird way, we you were- weren't, le- you, you weren't hanging around, to, hanging your head in depression. No, I might have visited my local watering hole a little bit more here and there. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, I became a cheerleader. I was trying to rally the troops. It was really quiet back then. It was a lot, not too much noise. We were able to really soak our teeth into the Grand Cherokee. And uh, design everything we could out. So we we doubled down on the company yeah. in a good way. Yeah. So to wrap up, one of the mm-hmm. questions that I really like to ask people I interview for this podcast is how they think about change. We talk a lot about change and the effect mm-hmm. of change. And what's interesting to me is to hear how artists and designers talk about the change that they create in the world, no matter mm-hmm. what the radius of influence. And I'm interested in how well, you think about that's that. That's a big way to end this thing. Um, I don't know what it is. I maybe on my deathbed I'll look back and someone will tell me what I did. I don't know. I don't think of it that way. I, it's too scary uh, for me. I do know that I'm part of a, a team of executives that have helped keep this company afloat, and and you know we have 230,000 employees around the world that rely on us as a leadership team. So that is something I go to bed with every day. I know that my decisions, some way, somehow, have a ripple effect and affect a lot of lives. And then there's dealers, and there's you know I don't know what the extended. Uh, uh, effect is of what I do, but I know it's pretty big. Um, but I, if I think about it, I get scared and run away. So I, t- I try not to consume my mind with that, uh, but respect at the same time. You know, really respect that um, the ripple effect thing. It's a big deal. So I gotta, you know, think uh, think long and hard before I make decisions. Well, I can say to you, um, and surround yourself I mean, with great people. I always say and that. surround yourself <laughs> with great people. But I can certainly say to you that mm-hmm. um, you have influenced change in a very marked way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's evident in this conversation too. To me, I mean, you, you've brought a, a humanity and, frankly, a humility to all of this that I yeah. think is very striking. Thank you. And Thank you. that shows up, right? That mm-hmm. shows up. I think you said that you you've got to 
put love in everything in mm-hmm. the windshield and in the windshield wiper. And <laughs> yeah. did you say that? Yes. Everything yeah. is designed with care and love because people yeah. notice it. They, again, they can't articulate it, but they could just feel it. Okay. So, so yeah. if anything, yeah. there's a pretty fundamental and profound way of influencing change. I mean, if you care that much and you put it in and it makes a difference in people's lives. I want to finish with this one thought. I just thought about it as you were t- describing it is... There's a lot of non-glamorous parts of what we do, the design world, you know, and I try to make everyone on my staff feel like their part matters as much as anything else, if not more so, right? And when you get when you when you get that kind of uh, positive uh, disease going through the office, when people, hey, my my part matters, my part matters, my part, and you get this momentum going, then when you add it all up together, it's so powerful, right? And and again, the, I don't want to plug our products, but the Wrangler was made that way. Is everyone involved in that vehicle? knew that their part mattered. And if you if you take time and truly look at every little nuance of the vehicle, it's, it's just chock full of goodness, you know, little Easter eggs everywhere, mm-hmm. extra effort that was put in. And we always mm-hmm. say molding that part is, is you're going to mold it anyway. Why not mold it with love? <laughs> you know, design it with care. And the consumer will forever notice that, you know, maybe subconsciously, maybe consciously, but so make everyone feel like they matter because they do. It's that simple. Well, love, care, creative engagement through... The, the the mask the all these things that we've talked about that's uh that's how change gets made and I think you've done a, a remarkable job influencing that so thank you thank you thank you for this great conversation really appreciate anytime. it anytime <laughs> take care delightful I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab the best way to support the show is to share it with your community and please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes Google Play or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, consultant Bruce Mason, and post-production services provided by Freedom Podcasting. Thanks for listening.